As Corey said earlier, we're looking at John chapter 1, and this morning we're going to look at the first five verses. The Gospel of John is a remarkable book. One of the things I plan on doing throughout this series is just sharing with you some quotes, some things that uh, Bible scholars, theologians, pastors have said about the Gospel of John and how it really is a remarkable book. Of course, we could say any book in the Scriptures is remarkable, But as people have studied this book, they've come away saying there's something unique here. There's something that sort of sets this book apart in a special way. And Martin Luther tried to uh, wrap his mind around that reality by saying this, Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle to the Romans and the Gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. In other words, if he's making a mad dash for it, you remember in third grade, your teacher always said, I got to get you and the grade book out of the building. That's the two things I got to get out. Luther's saying, if I got to pick, I'm not going to pick First Chronicles and uh, uh, Jonah. I'm going to pick Romans and I'm going to pick John. And everything you need to know about the Bible, about God, about theology, you can find somewhere in one of those books. So it's a remarkable book. And the first 18 verses, the the passage we're going to look at over the next several weeks, is a remarkable section of the book. You can almost think about John 1, 1 to 18 as the Cliff Notes version of the rest of the book, right? If you like things to be distilled, just give me the big idea. Where are we going? That's sort of what John is doing in this opening couple of paragraphs. One theologian says it this way, John's prologue, that's the first 18 verses, John's prologue is the foyer for entering the rest of the book. You go to somebody's house, you knock on the door, you walk into the foyer, you know a lot about the house already, right? You know what the house smells like, you get some sense of how they've decorated the house, you have some idea of if they've cleaned recently or haven't cleaned recently. You can hear things. Is the TV on and what's happening? Just stepping into the foyer, you get a little bit of a sense of what's coming. And Carson is saying when you read these verses, it's sort of like just easing into the foyer of somebody's house. You already begin to get a feel for what's happening in the book. Another commentator, Ed Klink, says it's like a lens for reading the rest of the book. Right? You, just, you take these 18 verses and you just hang on to them as you work through the gospel and you find yourself over and over and over, every chapter coming back and you say, oh yeah, that's what he was talking about in chapter 1. Oh yeah, this story where Jesus did this or said this or went here, that's what he was talking about all the way back in the prologue of the gospel. Another way to say this would be to say it like this, the prologue contains all the major themes that appear in the Gospel of John. Everything that we're going to come across, all the big ideas, all the important theological truths, somehow can be tied back to this opening section. And we're, we're going to spend three weeks working through the prologue. And so we're going to read it uh, for three weeks, and then we're going to break it down into sections. The big idea of the first five verses is really simple. Really simple, and yet it will take a lifetime, and we really could say an eternity, to grasp the implication of it. Jesus is God come to deliver fallen humanity from death and darkness. Jesus is God and he has come to deliver fallen human beings, you and me, men and women, boys and girls, from death 
in darkness. That's the big idea of the first five verses. Now, Corey read through the whole prologue with you earlier. Let's just read the first five verses again. Scripture says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to think back to the last time you met a stranger. I don't mean somebody that you knew who they were and you had never actually personally met. I mean uh, a stranger, somebody you didn't know who they were. You met them, you didn't know their name, you knew nothing about them, and you had to sort of go through the the introductory process of getting to know this person. There's several things. If you found yourself in that situation recently, you probably wanted to know. You probably wanted to know, what is this person's name? What should I call you? How do I get your attention? What is your name? You probably want to know where they're from. Are you from here? Are you from some other place? Did you grow up in Texas? Did you grow up in another country? Where are you from? You might have wanted to know a little bit about their family. Tell me, are you married? Do you have kids? Are your parents living? Uh, where are your family and, and how did you end up here? You want to know some of that sort of stuff. And then you probably want to know, what do you do? What do you do all day? Do you sit at home and watch TV all day? Do you work in the oil field all day? Do you wrangle kids in a classroom all day? Uh, do you crunch numbers all day? What do you do with your life? What's your name? Where are you from? Tell me about your family and tell me what you do. It's no coincidence that when you learn a foreign language, after you learn how to ask where the bathroom is, those are the questions they start you out with, right? What's your name and where are you from? Tell me what you do. Tell me about your family. That's sort of how we get to know people. And in these first five verses, it continues throughout the prologue, but especially in these first five verses, John is just introducing us to Jesus, right? He's introducing us to Jesus. You may have some familiarity with him this morning. You may just know the name and you've never actually met him. You may have never heard anything about Jesus in your life, and John is saying, I need to introduce you to somebody. This is his name. And this is where he's from. And here's a little bit about his family relationships. And this is what he does. This is why he came to the earth. He's answering all of these basic questions that we like to ask when we get to know a person. And so I just want you to to notice a couple of things about this introduction. How does John introduce his readers to Jesus? First thing, this is important. He wants us to know the story of Jesus is a continuation of an old story. It's a continuation of an old story. If I were to stand up on this platform and look at you guys and say, once upon a time, before I told you the rest of the story, before I said anything out, just with those few words, once upon a time, four words, you would begin to process what was coming next. You would think, oh, okay, fairy tale. Maybe this is a a story of a princess or a prince or some sort of rescue. Or maybe it happened in a, a land far away in a time long ago. Once upon a time sort of sets the stage for the story that follows. Right? John does that in John 1. 
Of all the ways that John could have started his gospel, Luke has his own unique way of starting his gospel. He talks about his historical research methods, and Matthew has his own way of starting his gospel. He gives us a genealogy, and Mark is all about action when you read the gospel of Mark, so he just jumps right into the story and really doesn't stop for for a second breath. John starts with the words, in the beginning, and he does it on purpose. It wasn't that he couldn't think of anything better. It wasn't that he had writer's block. It wasn't that he was just plagiarizing. He's going all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning. And from the get-go, John wants you to filter everything that he's about to tell you through those words. And what he's saying to you right out of the gate is, this is not a completely novel story that I'm about to tell you. It's a new development in the story, right? A new chapter has come in the story, but this is the same story you've been reading year after year after year as the people of God. The story began with the words, in the beginning, and John is saying to you here, in the beginning. If you want to make sense of everything that follows, you've got to make sense of the first part of the story, the Old Testament. Now, can we put the Luther quote back on the screen? Back from the beginning, Luther says, my paraphrase, all you really need is Romans and John. So does John contradict him here when John says, in effect, what you really need is the Old Testament? I'm telling you a a new development in this old story. I don't think there's a, a contradiction between these guys. I think what Luther is saying is there's enough in John that you can be saved. You can come to this gospel and you can read this gospel. You can know nothing about the scriptures, nothing about God, nothing about theology. And you can read the gospel of John and you can walk away having saving faith in Jesus. Millions of people have done that. Millions of people have been saved by a single verse from the gospel of John. John 3.16. And they understand when they read that verse, I'm a sinner. And God did something to fix that. And I need that solution. I need that salvation in my life. Yes, you can be saved. And the heart of the gospel will be preserved just in this book. But this is what John's telling you. If you really want to get all the pieces put together. If you really want to understand who he is, who Jesus is, all of his attributes, all of his history. If you really want to understand why he said all the specific things that he said, you've got to pay attention to the rest of the story. You've got to go back to the beginning. And so he starts off, in the beginning. And then he does something that no self-respecting Jew would have really ever dared to do. He changed it. He changed the script. Everyone knows that Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John completely goes rogue, and he just, he turns a corner here, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. That's the second thing on your notes. John wants us to know Jesus as the Word. As we think about this introduction, he's giving us a, a, a new take on Jesus here, and he says, Jesus is the word. The Greek word is logos or lagos, depending on how you like to pronounce the vowel O. Nobody really knows how they pronounced it, so you can pick one, say it with confidence, and sound like you're an educated Greek scholar. Just say it with confidence. He's the logos or he's the lagos. And Bible scholars sort of wrestle with this. They say, why did John pick that? Why did he pick that word? What's interesting is that there were a lot of philosophers in John's day who were talking about the logos, or the Lagos. 
For example, there was a Greek philosopher named Plato. That's Plato over on the left. And he wrote a lot about the Lagos. He really wasn't talking about the God of the Bible, but he had a lot to say about this idea of the word and what that meant and why it was important. There's a Jewish philosopher on the right. He's got great earrings. His name was Philo. And Philo had a lot to say about the Logos. He'd read the Old Testament, and he talked about the Word of God and what is the Word of God and all these things together. And so you get these Bible scholars, and they say, you know, if you really want to understand John 1.1, you've got to listen to Plato a little bit. And you've got these other guys, they say, look, if you really want to wrap your arms around John 1.1, you've got to listen to Philo, right, the Jewish philosopher. John's already played his hand. And he didn't play his hand as in you need to listen to Plato, or you need to listen to Philo, or any of the other philosophers who were talking about the the Logos in the day. If you want to make sense of this, you got to listen to the Old Testament. That's why he starts the way he starts. In the beginning. We're going all the way back to this old story. And he tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And if you want to make sense of that, if I want to make sense of that, you've got to think, what was the significance of God's Word? In the Old Testament. It's not really complicated. There's just several ideas. In the Old Testament, the Word of God was active in creation. It was active in revelation. Not like the book of Revelation, but in God revealing truth to His people. He did that through His Word. And in salvation. Right? These are the ideas that keep popping up when you read about the Word of God in the Old Testament. In the book that starts with the phrase, in the beginning. And I just put the examples up. God said, Genesis 1-3, let there be light and there was light. He did it with his word. It's the word of God creating everything. That's creation. Uh, Jeremiah 1-4, the word of the Lord came to me. This is how God spoke to the prophets. This is how he spoke to the people. He revealed truth to them through his word. Psalm 107, he sent out his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destruction. That happened through the power of his word. And when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he doesn't want you to think about Plato, and he doesn't want you to think about Philo. He wants you to think about the Old Testament. He wants you to understand what he's saying is this. The Word of God, who we later learned to be Jesus in this prologue, the Word of God is the creator of all things. He is the full and the final revelation of God and his character to his people. He's the full revelation of truth. And he is the full and final and only source of salvation for those who are lost. He's the creator. He reveals the nature of God and he saves his people. This is what Bible scholars call a high Christology. A big view of God. They refuse to let us think about Jesus as only the carpenter from Nazareth. They refuse to let us get away. John's refusing to let us get away with this idea. Well, you know, he's a great moral teacher. He had a lot of great things to say. He really knew how to drive a point home. He knew how to use parables, and he's just a master teacher. You know, Jesus, he tells you how he wants, how he wants you to live your life, and he's just a nice guy, and he healed a lot of people. He was, I, he was a great, great guy. And John cuts through all that baloney, and he says, no, 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 no. You cannot have a low view of Jesus. You have to have a high view of Jesus. He's the creator. He's the one who reveals who God is to his people. And he is the source of salvation 
for God's people. So we're working off a high Christology. One last thing that John tosses into the introduction. He wants us to know that Jesus came to bring life and light. Those two ideas come up over and over and over again in in the Gospel of John. Jesus came to bring life, and he came to bring light. Look at verse 4. In him was life. In the Word, in Jesus was life. He had life in himself. He didn't derive it from any other source. It was just in him. And that life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness. The light is shining in the darkness. Just like Genesis 1-1, where there was nothing and it was dark and it was empty and it was void. And the Word of God spoke and light burst into the darkness. In the exact same way, the light shines in the darkness now and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a big difference between life and death. I know that and you know that. It's different as a pastor when you go to the hospital and you're visiting the maternity ward or you're visiting the CCU. Those are not the same things. It's different when you are attending a baby shower or you're attending a funeral. They're not the same. They're completely different. John is telling us right from the gate, Jesus came to give you life. And the assumption is, as much as we like to think that we are living and alive creatures, the assumption is you don't have it. Left to yourself, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. And Jesus, the Word of God, came to give you life. There can be no greater contrast John's just grasping for words, so he he moves from life and he starts to talk about light. Light and darkness. They're opposites. They can't coexist. There's times when I'll I'll be here at the church and it'll be in the evening and I'll need to get from one end of the building to the other and the sun's gone down and the lights are off and I find myself walking through the skinny hallway. You know, the one where if you're not careful, the door will pop out and knock you out to the other side of the hallway, which is not very far because it's a skinny hallway, but it's a dangerous hallway. It's even more dangerous at night because it's dark. There's no lights, there's no window, and I find myself at the end of the hallway. You kind of have to go down to the light switch, and so it's dark, and I think, I I think I can make it. I've walked the hallway a thousand times, there's rooms here, and I think I can feel my way down, and every time I get about halfway down, and I think, I just should have hit the light switch. It's dark. And John is saying, look, you may think you've got it all figured out. You may may be really successful and people may look up to you and you may look like you have your act together. But left to yourself, you are stumbling in darkness. You're lost. You don't know where you're going. You don't know up from down or left from right. You don't know where the hallway ends and where it stops and where the turnoff is. You're lost. It's dark. And what you need is life. Jesus came to bring life, and he came to bring light. And I just want to make one obvious point. He came to bring life. He came to bring light. He doesn't do it with just a snap of his fingers. He doesn't show up and take out his magical wand and wave it around and say the magic words and say, here you go, now you dead People lost in darkness have light and life. That's not how it happens when you read the rest of the story. What actually happens when you read the rest of the story 
is that Jesus, come to give us life and light, dies in darkness. He tastes our death in the fullest sense. He dies. The one, you wrap your mind around this, you'll never be able to wrap your your mind around this. The one who had life in himself died for me and for you. And in that moment, the Father darkened the sky and he died in darkness. Not a coincidence that the story ends that way. John's telling you right from the very beginning. He came to give you light and he came to give you life. And because he came to give you those things, because you were dead and lost in darkness, he took your death and he took that darkness. And he is able to give you life and light because Jesus, the Word, died in darkness. That's who he is in John 1, 1 to 5. How do we respond to him? Right? We're not done with the text. Don't close your Bible. We're going to keep wrestling through these verses. But I want us to move to the question, how do we respond to him? What in the world do we do with this passage? And I'm going to give you four thoughts. Number one, we should have a theological response, which means thinking right thoughts about Jesus. One of the responses we should have when we walk away from John 1 is a theological response. The thoughts that we think about Jesus should be true, right Biblical thoughts. Here's a quote from a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes. He's talking about John 1, and he says, The simple sentence of verse 1 is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all Scripture. Hughes is telling you there's more crammed into John 1.1 than any other verse in the entire Bible. Right? What a ridiculous notion that we could fully unpack it in 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. It is compact and it's small and it's short and it's to the point, but it is pulsating with theological truth. It's filled, it's overflowing with theological truth. Now look, theology is for thinking people. Americans are really not that great at thinking. We're great at thinking about some things. We're great about thinking of uh, food. Where are we going to eat next? Americans like to think about that. Where's my next meal going to come from? Some of you are thinking about that right now. You say, all right, I already got that one done. I'm way ahead of you. been thinking about that for 30 minutes. We like to think about our hobbies. When's the next time I can get away from my responsibilities and go do what I really like to do? Go to the lake, go to the mountains, go see my grandkids. We love to think about those things. We love to think about uh, the series we're binge-watching on Netflix, right? We just get wrapped up in series, and I I know this experience, you know this experience. You say, oh, it's the greatest show ever, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. I'm just going to put my life on hold and watch 20 episodes right in a row so I can get through it. It's all I can think about. It just consumes us. But in John 1, the apostle is calling us to be thinking people. Christians have to be thinking people. John has given us all kinds of heavy, heady theological truth. And he doesn't want us just to highlight it and put a smiley face out in the margin of your Bible and say, oh, that's great. He wants you to stop and wrestle with it and think about it and run it through your mind. He wants you to think right thoughts about Jesus. For example, he wants you to think about 
pre-existence. Pre-existence. He's telling you right here that the Word was pre-existent. He existed before anything else existed. Go back to the text and look what he says. In the beginning was the Word. When the beginning started, the Word was already there. He didn't show up when the beginning started. He existed before the beginning. And then he goes on and he says this. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things, verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John says there's two categories of reality. One category we're going to call created things. And the other category we're going to call uncreated things. Everything in the universe fits into one of those buckets. It was either created or it was uncreated. And John says, you take everything you know and experience and you dump it in the created bucket. And over here in the uncreated bucket is Jesus. And we know that because he says, everything in that bucket was made by Jesus, by the Word. Completely uncreated. Look, this is a mystery for children and for adults. Just this week, one of my little girls came home and she said, Dad, I was talking to this kid at school about the Bible and stuff, and he has a question, and I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. I said, okay, what's the question? The question was, when and how did God create himself? And you could see her wheels turn, and she's like, I think I need to be real careful in what I say here. I, I think I know, but I, I'm not sure. And so we said, you know, that's a head-scratcher when you're in second, third grade, right? That's a head-scratcher when you're in the senior adult Sunday school class. You, that, you don't ever stop scratching your head on that one. And here's John's answer, right? He never created himself. He was preexistent. He just was. In the beginning, he was there. He has no lineage. has no parentage. He has no background. He didn't come from anyone. He doesn't have a birthday. He just was in the beginning. He was preexistent. That's a big thought. That's a hard thing to start to wrap your mind around. He also talks about the Trinity. I know the word Trinity is not in John 1. I know the Holy Spirit really doesn't come up in our section of John 1. But he's talking about Trinitarian ideas. Notice what he says in the text. He says, in the beginning was the Word. That's where he was in the beginning. He was with, the Word was with God. Literally what he says is he was face to face. He was towards God. The word was there in the beginning and he was towards God. He was face to face with God. And then he just makes your head explode and he says the word was God. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, he, I thought they were together. But now you're telling me they're the same. And John just looks at you and nods and says, that's what I'm telling you. And you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And John would say to you, do you expect to be able to make sense of the infinitely holy creator God? A little bitty tiny you? Do you expect to be able to wrap your arms around that completely? He was with him in the beginning. And he was him in the beginning. Right? This the Trinitarian idea of the unity of the Godhead. There is only one God, but there are three persons within the Godhead. And there they were, together, and one, at the same time. And John just wraps it up, and he describes it for us nicely. And you walk away, and you say, that's a really big thought. I, 
I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. Here's what you do with it. You do your best to submit your thinking to what the Scripture says. And you don't come away saying, well, I don't understand how that could be. I don't know. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't. You don't sit in judgment over the Scripture. You allow the Scripture to sit in authority over you, and you say, that's what God's revealed to us. I believe it. These are big theological thoughts, and part of our response is being thinking people and thinking rightly about how God has revealed himself. Secondly, let's talk about a doxological response, which means worshiping Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. Doxa is a a Greek word for praise or worship. Some of you remember growing up in a church where you sang the doxology at the end of every worship service, or maybe on holidays your family sang the doxology. That's a word of praise, right? Speaking praise, worship. We should have a worshipful response to John 1. If you come away from John 1 and all you have is ideas and talking points to prove a a position and you're not moved to worship, you miss the whole point of John 1. The Bible says in John 1.1 that the Word existed in the beginning, that He created all things, and that nothing that has come into existence came into existence outside of His activity. He created all of it, and not a single thing exists that He didn't create. That includes blue whales and microscopic Bacteria, both. That includes mustard seeds and the giant redwoods in California. That includes West Texas sunsets that stretch from one end of the sky to the other and lightning bugs. All of it. Why did he make it? Why did he make all these different things? Why did he create them? Here's the answer, Colossians 1. By him, not hum, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created, here's the answer, through Jesus, through him, and for Jesus. He made all of it for himself to bring glory to him. Every part of it. All of it was created with a purpose and a design. How many of you have eaten at a Cracker Barrel? How many of you have not eaten at Cracker Barrel? Did somebody say, ooh? Oh, man. We'll get you one of the transfer slips to the Methodist church when we're done. We'll send you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Cracker Barrel. I guess there's two kinds of people. Either you're an American and you love Cracker Barrel, or you're a communist and you don't like Cracker Barrel. So, (laughs) Cracker Barrel. Um, We don't have one in Odessa, but you can go to Midland. When we lived in Kentucky, uh, people in, when we moved to Frankfurt, people were really mad. Uh, They had put a bid in to get a Cracker Barrel. In the city of Frankfurt, it's the capital of Kentucky, they had an ordinance that you could not put a sign uh, over really any height at all. So it's nice when you drive through the town, there's not a bunch of ugly signs everywhere. But Cracker Barrel said, we, we will come if we can put our big sign up that you can see for 20 miles away. And the city said no. So they didn't put it in Frankfurt, they put it in Shelbyville. So if you wanted to eat at Cracker Barrel, you had to drive over to Shelbyville. And it just so happened that from my house, driving towards Shelbyville, 
uh, one of my deacons lived. His name was Alvin. He was an older guy. I think I've told you about Alvin before a couple of times. Uh, he was retired from one of the distilleries in Frankfurt. There's all sorts of distilleries there. He worked there most of his life. He grew tobacco like a lot of folks in uh, Kentucky do growing up. And uh, he ran cattle. I- I'm telling you all these things about Alvin to say this is a guy who knew how to work with his hands. Okay, He knew how to do things. And he was at home on the farm working with his hands and working with tools and figuring things out. And so Alvin loved to go eat at Cracker Barrel. And so I'd pick him up and we'd drive over to Shelbyville. It's about uh, 15 minutes, pretty drive through the country. And we'd get over there on the back roads. We'd eat at Cracker Barrel. Now, when I walk into Cracker Barrel, I see a couple of things immediately. One, I see a money pit and all the stuff they're trying to sell you in the front. But if you've ever looked up, I couldn't find a really great picture. But if you ever walk into that country store and you look up, they got what I like to think of as a bunch of junk hanging in the ceiling, right? I just look up there and I see, okay, there's a metal piece of junk and there's a metal piece of junk with some wood sticking off the side and uh, there's a plastic piece of junk. It's just a bunch of junk up there. I don't know what any of that stuff is. And I would go to Cracker Barrel with Alvin, old farm guy, right? And his favorite thing to do, I got really good at talking about all this junk is he would say, look at that right there. Do you know what that is? And I was tempted to say, yes, I know what that is. Everybody knows what that is. But if I did that, he would say, what is it? And then I'd say, oh, and well, I don't know what that is. I've never seen one of those in my life. And he'd say, let me tell you what that is. That's uh, for moving ice blocks. That's what that's for. And here's how it works, and here's how you use it. And I used to use one back, da 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 and he'd tell me the story. And then he'd look at something else, and he'd say, you know what that is? And I'd say, I have no idea what that is. It just looks like junk to me. And he'd say, it's, it's not junk. It has a purpose. It's shaped that way for a reason. It's designed, right? It's not just junk, but it's a tool. There's design and intentionality and purpose behind it. And you look at all this junk and you begin to look at it uh, very, very differently when you know what it is and why it was created and how it was to be used. So there's a question when you look at John 1. And John 1 says that the Word made everything. And Colossians 1 says it was all made for Him. And the question is, do you know your purpose? Do you know it or do you not? Your purpose in life is not to raise the best kids ever. I mean, that's important. Raise your kids the right way. That's not your overarching number one purpose. Your purpose in life is not to make a lot of money. Now, we live in the part of the country where people from time to time make a lot of money. And some of you say, well, at my job, I benefit from the economy here and I make money. That's fine, make money. That's not the real reason God put you here, though. That's not your overarching purpose. You say, well, maybe my purpose is to be successful and to advance in my profession and my career, or maybe my, pers- my purpose is just to help people and be nice. And you've got to cut through all those American cultural Christianity answers, and you've got to understand what John is saying to you. You were made by Jesus. He made you. And you were made for Jesus. You exist for Him. You exist to make Him look good. 
You exist to make him look glorious. You exist to praise him, to worship him, to glorify him, to honor him. And if you don't understand your purpose, being my purpose here is to worship. In the things that I say, in the things that I do, in the emotions that I feel, in the thoughts that I think, if you don't understand your purpose, you look around and you just see a bunch of junk. There's no big idea connecting why we're here and who we are. And John wants us to respond worshipfully, knowing this is who we are. He made us. The Word made us. Our response ought to be worship. Number three, an evangelical response, meaning believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelical comes from the Greek word for gospel or good news. So there's good news here, and our response needs to be believing it. Just out of curiosity, how many of you still read King James Version of the Bible? Right, You guys, the ones who really love the Lord, hanging on to the King James. I want you to see something. This is interesting to me, and this is not to poke fun at King James people. I want you to look at verse 5. My guess is that just about everyone in the room who is not reading a King James, tracked along with me in verse 5 where it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light. Those of you who are reading out of King James or New King James, it doesn't say that. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or comprehended it. And there's this sort of debate among scholars How shall we translate the word? And the funny thing is John has picked a word with two meanings. And the really funny thing is John does this a lot. He picks a word that has two meanings. And when you come time to translate it into English, you say, well, which way do we go with the translation? And sometimes the best answer is to say both of them. Because he has both of the ideas in mind. And I think this is the first example of that in the Gospel of John. What he's saying is this darkness... Excuse me, this light shined into the darkness, and the darkness didn't get it. It was, in a sense, just over their head. They didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. They couldn't connect the dots. They just saw the light and heard what the light had to say, and it just made them angry. They didn't get it. They didn't comprehend it. But on another level, John's saying, they also couldn't defeat it. They couldn't destroy it. They couldn't stop it. The darkness has not overcome the light and how it's shining. Look, the cross was a victory. It was victory. The Word of God accomplished what He came here to accomplish. He came to give us life and light. And in order for us to get life and light, He had to die in darkness. And John is telling you right here out of the gate, it worked. The plan worked. He wasn't frustrated by his death on the cross. That's the very reason he came. And in the end, he wins. The darkness didn't get it, but the darkness certainly couldn't overcome it or stop it. John is calling us to believe. This is the good news, and he wants us to believe it. Number four, last, a missiological response, which means telling the world about light and life. And I want you to keep your Bible open because we're going to read these verses one last time in a minute. Missio is a Latin word that means sending. So missiology is the study of missions, the study of sending people with the gospel. And when you understand John 1, 1 to 5, one of the things that you ought to do is realize I have a story to tell. 
I have a story to tell. I don't know if you've noticed, my guess is you have on some level, but people in the 21st century are fascinated with beginnings, fascinated with origins. This is really not a new thing for people who live in the 21st century. If you go back and you study ancient history, every different people who have ever lived on this earth had some sort of explanation about where we came from. What was our beginning? What was our origin? They all had a story. The Bible presents a version of that story. But people are fascinated with this question today. Well, where did we come from? What is our origin? What's our backstory? And so you can listen to the scientific community and the scientific community, uh, many of them, not all, but many who uh, have no place for God in their thinking who say, well, we can explain where you came from and it was this and it happened in this way. If you watch uh, space movies, that's sort of a popular genre of movie right now or TV show. You watch space movies. At some point, they always talk about this was the beginning. Where We can trace it back to this thing that happened. And this is where human beings came from. Or this is where the aliens came from. This is where we all came from. Companies make millions of dollars. You know they make millions of dollars because they buy millions of dollars worth of commercials to sell you DNA kits. And the DNA kit promises, we will tell you where you came from. Why does that resonate with people? It's because deep down we want to know, where did I come from? What is my, my history? Who are my ancestors? Where can I trace this back to? And we fork over the money because we want to know, where did we come from? We watch superhero movies. We pay billions of dollars to watch superhero movies. And in every good superhero movie, they include a little bit of backstory. They say, this is where your hero came from, or this is where the villain came from. We want to know that when we watch a movie. Where did these, these great heroes come from, or where did these terrible villains come from? We're interested in that. John 1 is the ultimate backstory. It's the origin story. It answers the question that every person on the planet wrestles with on some level, and that is, who am I and where did I come from? What is the beginning of all of this that I experience now? And John lays it out like this. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look, we got a long ways to go in the Gospel of John. But just right there in the first five verses, there's a story to tell. And there's people you know who are looking for that sort of answer. Where did I come from? How did it all start? What's the beginning? And John says, here's the story. This is what was in the beginning. And this is how we came to be. And this is why the word came to give life and to give light. John is saying to us right out of the gate, just the first five verses of this gospel, you have a story to tell. Not just a story to tell that people might find amusing or they might purchase or they might buy into, but you have the story to tell. Are you part of the story? Are you in on the story? 
In a sense, all of us are in on it. You don't get a choice whether or not you play a role in this story or not. Maybe a better question would be, are you in the light or are you in the darkness? Have you experienced life or are you still walking in death? I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray.